if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Ah, oh, that's easy. Uh, I would take you to the Lower Derwent Valley National Nature Reserve. Uh, it's one of the least known wetland areas in Britain, but you've never heard of it. It has wonderful hair meadows, and they're called Ings. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Ing is a Viking, and they've been farmed uh, as Ings since Viking times. It's an ancient, ancient, wonderful landscape. And in the spring, the hair meadows come, and it's full of waders, curlews, oyster catchers, black-tailed gobwits occasionally breed, corncrakes are there. Uh, it's a fabulous place and it's my favourite place in the whole world and I go whenever I can. Hello, David Oakes here and welcome again to Trees A Crowd. As you're no doubt well aware by now, this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. The voice you just heard was Sir John Lawton, President of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, talking to me last summer about Vikings, gotta love a Viking, and about his favourite place in the whole world, the Lower Derwent Valley in the Yorkshire Ings. Enthused by his passion, I set out to talk not to a Viking Ing farmer, love a Viking, but to a modern farmer of the Yorkshire Ings, to Rob Rose of Rosewood Farm. At Rosewood, they couldn't be further removed from modern factory farming methods if they tried. Their small herd of Irish Dexter cattle, sprightly little guys with big attitude and even bigger horns, again, much like those lovely Vikings, are herbicide, pesticide and fertiliser free. In fact, grazing on natural England's conservation areas, these cattle are part of a process more akin to an environmental rewilding exercise than they are to a food production one. I first encountered Rob reading his blog through his website where he referred to the process as making food as a byproduct of conservation. Anyway, enough from me. The voices you're about to hear are that of Rob Rose and Natalie Stoppard at Rosewood Farm. And this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. My family, both sides of the family, it's quite a large family, five brothers and sisters on each side. They were both in farming, but the last generation was sort of the last generation to farm. Mm -hmm. So we sort of were faced with the choice of waiting to sort of inherit a farm that you might not inherit mm -hmm. and then it ends up getting diced up into lots of little bits and you get 30 acres which is nothing not. today and also I had this attitude of you don't know what life's going to throw at you you might not make it to retire on a farm sure. so do it now and see where you go that was how I started keeping Dexters at the age of 14 14? <laughs> yeah Wow. <laughs> did, so did you just sort of, did what, did you just buy a plot of land or did you just sort of have a corner of your, your parents' well, field or like, well, my how dad, does a 14-year-old go and buy a cow? <laughs> well, I started off actually two years earlier when I bought a goat hmm. and I kept that on my dad's farm. He, well, he didn't have a spare shed. He had a very mucky, messy shed hmm. that I cleaned out and got ready for the goat and then yeah your dad hasn't like he, he's not your typical farming dad of i want my sons to follow after me sure. you know rob and paul had to come up with all this stuff themselves yeah quite minimal support really yeah it was i was discouraged into farming <laughs> yeah <laughs> so 
it was very much a case of you can't do that so that was my challenge uh-huh. and particularly with the Dexters he said they won't last and now what, 22 23 years later you're still farming Dexters yeah did you go for Dexters because you were a 14 year old boy and therefore they were the right size for a 14 year old boy um, well, partly it was because I didn't have any land. Okay. This small cows would work. This, so, this is what appeals to me about the story. It's it's kind of pastoralist or nomadic because you just had all the little bits of land that were left over that were too small or too rough or whatever okay. people couldn't be bothered with. So you get these wild little mountain cows from Ireland and, you know, jab them in here, there and everywhere and, and sort of live on the fly, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite an unusual way of going about it and that's in Britain of, these days. sort of what's happening now, but we'll get on to that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so did <laughs> you start continued. with the one cow? or? Yeah, we bought one cow in 1996. Uh-huh. This was with then, your brother? Yeah, well, the first cow I bought myself. But was, you had to convince Paul that... Dexter's were the right thing because Paul was a little bit more conventional than you, wasn't he? Well, yeah, and also I was too young to drive at the time, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Convincing Dad to go pick up a Dexter would have been nigh on impossible, I think. So. Was there someone breeding them locally, or did you have to go to Ireland to. Uh, no, there's quite a large network of breeders, particularly in Yorkshire. Sure. But the main focus is Devon. Okay. There's a lot of stock down there, and then sort of a northern contingent. The the breed but, survived here. They got very very rare at one point, and mm-hmm. they went extinct in Ireland, which is quite sad. So okay. they they're only here because of the English breeders, and they've been exported back over there now. Why did they go extinct? Do you know? They were too small, really, and um, the sort of concept of being a small holder wasn't really a thing till fairly recently, and uh, they just squeaked through on the rise of, I guess, people like John Seymour in the 70s and The Good Life, stuff mm-hmm. like that, people getting more interested, and, you know, Dexter's are a good fit. I mean, they're famous for their temperament. They're, they're quite spicy little characters, so I think a lot of people fall foul of that. But in terms of um, the logistics of looking after a cow, sure. they're, they're easier on your facilities and your pocket. Okay. So that's that was their niche, really, and that's what saved them. Um, but they're doing much better now. They're in no way a rare breed now. Okay. Um, but still a native breed, and, yeah. and still not commercial as such. Although farmers have warmed to them in recent years. Some, yeah. Yeah. When I started, you mentioned Dexter's and it was like scoffing at it. (laughs) But now people respect them a bit more, which is maybe partly down to us. (laughs) They take all the credit. You're an award-winning Dexter farmer. Yeah. Yeah, one of the largest herds in the country. How many have you got now? 160 cattle altogether, about 60 cows. We're still building up. We need a few more to... Make it worthwhile. Sure. How, I mean, this is a stupid question. Um, no, correction, there are no such things as stupid questions. <laughs> um, this is a safe place. <laughs> <laughs> um, how quick is the turnover for between getting a calf and then sort of rearing it? Do you have a set time or do you take it per individual? Or? Well, we started off because of BSE, which was sort of kicking off when we first got Dexter's in 96. I was doing my GCSEs around then because we ended up getting a free B&B in Ireland, which no, they couldn't sort of let out because of uh, BSE, because all the farming was shut off. So that's how I know when that was. Well, that's left one heck of a legacy, Mm -hmm. because 
originally, when they first brought the rules in, you couldn't kill any animals over 18 months old, mm. which favoured the more commercial, faster-growing, grain-fed breeds. And the Dexters were always struggling to finish. Sure. We really struggled with those rules because they gradually got to 24 months and then now to 30 months, which our local abattoir can only do up to 30 months. Mm-hmm. And you have to have extra licenses and paperwork to do all sure. your animals. And a and smaller abattoir just can't keep up with that, really. Yeah, it's not worth it for them. So why, the, why is that? What's the problem with having older animals? Just because they're harder to manage, they've got... Well, it, no, it's to do with the BSE prion protein. Oh, okay, to stop it developing and then... Yeah, it's supposed to be infective at a later stage. Okay. And initially, they didn't know the research was very basic. Sure. They didn't know what they were dealing with, so it was a precautionary measure to go down to 18 months. And as the science has progressed and the checks... It started going up again. Yeah. Okay. But it's taken... It does make everything high pressure with the beef production, though, because you are aiming to hit that 18-month deadline. And 18 months for an anim- uh, a beef animal just isn't that old, really. No. That You know, they'd be very immature. Um, and it, it takes a lot of energy input to get them that big that quick. Sure. And that's the way the industry moved, um, largely as a result of that change. Um, and like Rob's saying, we're lucky that that's slackened off now. And you can give them time and on this low energy input system to just grow to true maturity before mm. having to kill them. Yeah, and the key was another local abattoir, a little bit further away, another five miles away, started doing over 30 months up to 72, which is six years. Sure. So we can now tailor when we send them according to when they're finished, when we need them. Great. It's still a long old road though, isn't it? Because yeah, it's Rob is selling a specific product. It's got to be purebred Dexter. It's got to be grass-fed. Mm-hmm. And when Rob says grass-fed, he means it. He mm-hmm. doesn't mean they eat some grass and also other stuff. They're just eating grass through their entire lives. So really the calves are conceived here sure. and he's taking calves right from conception to slaughter. That can be four years. Because there'll be people who don't know anything about this. How abnormal is that to be doing that entire life journey over, over cow? It's it's becoming more usual now because I think there's quite a few businesses we've seen arise following sort of our template, you know, rewilders, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But at the time, you know, in the past, that was very unusual because very few businesses can afford a four-year lead-in time on absolutely tiny margins. Sure. You know, it is the only... You would only do it through passion, really. It makes no business sense. You don't see Alan Sugar knocking on the door wanting to invest at I'm that. Sure Imagine <laughs> Alan Sugar's butchers. That would just be terrifying. <laughs> Amstrad bacon. Yeah. No. Um, you mentioned rewilding and grass-fed, and I want, that's kind of what I want to get onto. Um, but what, I, I guess my first question before we get into that is... From being a 14-year-old with a cow, at what point does that sort of start to become someone who's got a, a whole sort of, well, a business, essentially? How, how slow was it? How was it growing? How massive a lesson did you learn from 14 onwards? <laughs> oh, you're I learning... think it's impossible to state, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> you're learning every day and the challenges are constantly changing. So 
are we out of business yet? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I would say things have only started forming into a recognisable, decent business very, very recently. Uh-huh. And it has taken 23 years. Yeah, and it, a lot of different factors coming together. So many, yeah. Um, like the slaughterhouse, not being able to do sure. over 30 months. That held us back, but there was nowhere around it at the time, so you just had to you deal, deal with, with what you've got. Yeah. So is it a passion project more than ever than it was supposed to be a business? Yeah. Are you still a 14-year-old boy with a cow? Yes. <laughs> he says with a massive yeah. grin on his face. Yeah. <laughs> Rob is so focused in life to the exclusion of everything else. Ah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, it's more sort of along the lines of being a vicar or something. It's sure. not a job. It's not a business. It's a lifestyle. And... Um, living here has been special because you're really living alongside the cows mm-hmm. and you know life cheek by jowl with them and your every move there. is dictated <laughs> by the cows and for the cows you know everything is for the cows um so for an anthrozoologist that's fascinating uh-huh. um but yeah it's rob is just so focused on it yeah, I don't like to give up on things either. <laughs> <laughs> Stubborn and passionate. Sounds like my kind of person. Yeah. So, so when did Natural England come along with their suggestion of grazing on their property? Well, when we first started, we were grazing, you know, the orchard on my dad's farm. Mm-hmm. And then we progressed to somebody else locally would have a field. And then we started renting a shed on another farm, paying them in meat. <laughs> And it gradually built up until I was in my second to last year at college. And this place, which is Roswood Farm now, it was just Orton Rudding's field (laughs) when we bought it. But this was 37 acres, and it seemed massive. Mm. (laughs) We had a dozen Dexters or something like that. Over the years, we grew the herd to fit the farm and naively thought you know you would be able to make a living out of this farm mm-hmm. which as the cost of living has risen over the years the bar keeps getting higher sure. we started grass feeding rotational grazing making the best use of the land that we had that was a game changer at the time that's that's a really important part of rob's story because um, the system, he heard about it on the radio, it comes from America, a chap called Joel Salatin. Mm-hmm. And really nobody else was doing it in the country So what at the was time. he suggesting? This, this was 2002. Um, and the main premise is that instead of uh, what's known as set stocking, so you have a field and you put cows into it until they've pretty much eaten everything um, and then you might move them on or top them up with Mm. extra food this is just giving them the amount of grass that they would eat in a 24-hour period and moving them every 24 hours and what that does is make very efficient use of the grass because they're not traipsing all over the field all the time crushing grass pooing on it so they don't want to eat it Mm -hmm. and they're not gorging all the good stuff straight away and then repeating visits to those plants their favorite plants and ignoring other plants and allowing weeds to come up they move on to a patch they eat what they want, they lie down and cud, they stand up and poo, they crush everything they don't want to eat, all mm. the bad stuff, and then we move them on. And it made complete logical sense. And I think the cattle 
although they have to live in a restricted space, naturally that is what they would do because of predators. They okay. would be tightly bunched because if you're all spread out, you're much more of a target. Sure. Uh, so it's kind of going with their natural behaviour and I think they really appreciate the novelty and the movement and cattle can be perceived as quite dirty creatures but they love a fresh, clean bite of grass as much as sure. anybody else would. Um, so I think getting that every single day, it felt good to give them that. So yeah, it's not... It doesn't sound too offensive no. when, when you lay it out like that, but to farmers at the time, it was complete voodoo. And we've had some absolute ding-dongs online <laughs> over it, haven't we? But now it's it won't feel like that perhaps to your audience sure. because it's much more accepted. There's a lot of people that do either paddock grazing, cell grazing, everyone remembers that from the archers recently. Um <laughs> And it's much more accepted now, but at the time, it's thought that Rob was the first person to introduce it commercially to this country. So that really made much more efficient use of the grass. So how did you find enough little patches of grass to move them on a daily basis? You create the patch, don't you, with with electric fencing, basically. Uh, Okay. Yeah, so you bunch them up and move them around a field with the fencing. Or if you're lucky enough to have a herd that's big enough and a field that's small enough, you might just have fields that can cope with a sure, daily move. Okay. It's it's very flexible. The fact that we were using electric fencing to subdivide our own fields meant that we're already set up to move to other fields that didn't have fencing, okay. which is basically the Ings, which is Natural England's floodplain meadows. So how far away are we from there now? They're all around us. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, it's not one sort of block of land, really. Mm. It follows the river, so it sort of goes along there and along there, and there's just lots of different little meadows that they've managed to save okay. from being drained or whatever. But when, when you add it all up together, it's some quite big chunks of land, and we'll go and see one. Yeah, so we're spread out over 14 miles now. <laughs> but back in 2012, we were... Just here, 37 acres, we had a few bits that I'd retained from the days when we didn't have any land. Mm-hmm. It was about 80 altogether. Yeah. Uh, but um, it was terrible weather, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, that was yeah. one of the worst years of my life. Yeah, it was a really bad haymaking season, Okay. followed by a long winter and then a cold spring. So the, the grass didn't grow, we didn't make the hay. We needed a lot to feed over the winter, and then it didn't grow in spring. So it was a bit of a shock. Did you lose a lot of the herd? Comparatively, yeah. Yeah. We did. And we had to make the decision to cull quite a few who were sort of on a decline and and probably wouldn't have made it. Mm. And it was tough decisions because all the other farmers in the country were in the same boat, so there was nothing you could buy. Mm. You know, all the forage that was made was poor quality, and it was an extremely high price. And it made zero sense business-wise. So, like, some really tough decisions. Do we go into debt? And you kind of had to, in the end, sort of strike a balance. It's like some of the animals are going to have to go. We will go into debt to feed the ones that are coping better. But, yeah, we did lose quite a few. I mean, not not anywhere near, like, a quarter or a half of the herd, but Mm. far more than we used to. Uh, And it was absolutely dire. Yeah. So, that shock caused me to look for more land and well we were grazing the churchyard would you believe it (laughs) at the time and this chap from uh, natural england pops his head up over the wall and says are you robert rose with the dexters 
<laughs> yes, I was. Um, <laughs> and he had a farmer with 15 acres of regenerated pasture and it was entered in a countryside stewardship scheme and he needed some native breed cattle to graze it. So we were headhunting, basically. Okay. And then, as well as that, a lot of um, grazing contracts in the Inns came up, which is basically a short-term grazing agreement for one year. The Inns are shut off in early spring for the birds mm-hmm. to um, breed and fledge. And then from July the 1st, the farmers are allowed to go down cut the hay. It then, floods for a lot of the year as well. This is a system yeah. that's been around for at least a thousand years. Sure. Flower feast and flood. And it was sort of coming to a bit of a head at that point, wasn't it, for the first time in a thousand years. Whereas in the past, the emphasis was on, um, in the fairly recent past, under Natural England's time, shall we say, um, the emphasis was on kind of controlling what farmers did and keeping them off the ings. Okay. But because farming had changed so much, the ings lost their value to farmers. They weren't productive enough. Yeah, okay. So in 2012, Natural England were facing a kind of exodus where the farmers, it just wasn't worth their time to go and graze it. And then we realised how much the biodiversity depends on cattle. Sure. Cattle specifically. There were still some sheep around but they don't have the grazing action that cattle do. And biodiversity was plummeting, so, so they were was, desperate for people to graze. So was this the point that everything sort of shifted because this land was suddenly available? So you moved from being, just moving it around in the start of the American Farmer Guy, and then, what's his name, Joel? Salatin. Salatin. As a, as a result of there just being the right land, a new idea formed again. Yeah, before yeah. it was very much about efficiency, wasn't it? And it was all yeah. business. And the nature was a complete byproduct of that. Okay. We've always liked nature. We wanted to be sustainable, and I think we were. But it was primarily driven from a sort of money efficiency angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but Natural England thought that it would work really well on the Ings. And um, most of the time it does. It, not every situation requires mob stocking and that level of intense grazing but it's certainly a very useful tool to have. And once Natural England started to trust us um, and the system that we had to be gentle on the land, we started getting a lot more freedom and having a lot more land passed our way. So what is your current policy? I mean, I'm asking that leadingly in terms of everything because I already know what it is (laughs) on the website. Um, So what what is your ethos now? We, We are in a state of flux ourselves you know things have changed so much well i was going to get onto the ipcc report in a moment yeah (sighs) pre Um, pre current terror about climate change and biodiversity decline what was your agenda we wanted to make money didn't we yeah Um, (laughs) basically uh, to make dexter's pay yeah and and we had to survive that's just a necessity uh so it was whatever it took but i would say we never bought chemicals there was like this hard line um, and there was just certain things we so just the fungicide, do. pesticide, herbicide yeah. that was never never ever ever never bought a drop Rosewood under your ownership has never seen anything remotely like it yeah when we moved here the previous occupant had put a load of fertiliser on uh-huh. which meant we had grass up here which we cut for hay and then there was that much material there 
that it wouldn't make in the weather windows that we had. Okay. So it kept getting rained on, the quality kept getting worse. <laughs> so we decided from that point that even if we wanted to, which we didn't... There was no value to actually support Yeah, it. why pay out money to make your job harder? <laughs> yeah, just... and the cattle, you know, they're tough little Irish mountain cows. Uh-huh. They're supposed to survive on nothing. Sure. So if we started shoveling money into them, they're never going to grow like a continental beast would. So it's, it's just pointless. So the the ethos really was taking what nature will provide as an extra, hoovering up the extras uh-huh. and just taking whatever is given rather than trying to change nature to produce more and I think that makes us closer to a pastoral system. Uh-huh. So you've got your nomads wandering about the desert with the camels and just whatever they find, they will graze with the camels. This is the same thing rather than, okay, here's a field, what can I put on it to make it more productive? And so that increases the biodiversity of wildflowers, of grasses, of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like it because um, I think the cattle get a variety and they like that. Um, and I think getting all those different plant species and things is good for their health mm-hmm. and they're bred for it so they really thrive on it so yeah we would do anything in inverted commas but there were certain no-go areas like buying chemicals and stuff we always wanted to be sustainable mm-hmm. and none of us were of a mind to compromise were we we're, we're not compromising people yeah. and we're not going to be like mealy mouth about <laughs> it and say well we're doing a transition and we're only putting a little bit of chemical on and so, we're only putting no, them was, a yeah. little bit it was of total and 100% yeah, from that first yeah. moment honesty is very important to us too yeah and there's no point pussyfooting around you may as well say it like it is the customer can decide for themselves Mm -hmm. and make an informed choice do you think that's scalable though or do you think you have to be a small uh, business to do that i I mean that's that's the the time it wasn't scalable Mm. but i think over time it's become more doable Uh uh the customer is more informed more on our side um and yeah, I think it, it looks positive. And like we say, there's a lot of companies that have sprung up now who are doing things very similar. Yeah, having the time to tell your story is important as well. It can seem like a complete waste of time mm-hmm. to be on Twitter or writing blogs, but at the end of the day, that's the only way that the customer's going to know. Sure. Uh, what do you think's changed? Why do you think people are more interested? Why am I here with a microphone? <laughs> The whole culture's changed, it, yeah. I think. And also shocks to society. Things like the horse meat scandal. Mm-hmm. Suddenly people realised that they didn't know what they were getting. And whenever there's a shock to our food system, people feel like they need to know more, so they're seeking us out. People are never used to care. And quite, I mean, like I, where I grew up in the New Forest... People just think the ponies are roaming wild and they're lovely and they're cute and there might be a donkey and it's lovely. They don't realise that they're farmed. Yeah. People sort of go, well, no, they're just the wild ones. Yeah. Like, and then there's the food ones. And that, no, and you're like, no, like you're part of the food chain. Everything that you're seeing is people, I don't know why, but I'm whether it's just the sensationalist of journalism these days that are making these stories more interesting, whether it's horse meat and Finder's crispy pancakes or whatever it was that sort of sparked that certain tranche yeah. of journalism for a moment. Well, I think one of the big things in business was that for all these years, the last half century, we've been aiming to make meat cheaper. Mm. And 
the consequence of that is it's become more bland which you know cheap chicken is the pinnacle of blandness sure. but on the production side it's also about as cheap as you can possibly make it um, so business is constantly looking to reduce their costs and the big manufacturers are looking to reduce the amount of meat simply to make their products cheaper and more competitive mm -hmm. so that's there's the welfare aspect as well isn't there like I always say um, that big business doesn't want to deal with animals I honestly think they'd like to phase it out because animals the reality of working with animals is that they are unpredictable mm -hmm. both in behavior and also their body shape and size and growth rate and things like, like that working with actors to be honest yeah <laughs> and they would much rather a very predictable uniform product and they also have the pesky issue of welfare people oh. don't like it when you treat a chicken mean and this is irritating to big business they'd rather not deal with it so if they can deal with grains which no one cares about the welfare of mm -hmm. they will um so i think that's why we're seeing a lot of food um from the industrial system if you will that is the emphasis is definite we're always told we eat too much meat which is a massive bugbear with me and rob yeah. uh, but really when you examine it we do not you know well, it's about eating no better meat. than it is about just sort of removing things mm -hmm. because everything's interconnected the yeah the biodiversity thing is a huge thing if we can cr the, the, the phrase on your website that i think is amazing is making food as a byproduct of conservation i mean that's as a tagline goes that's pretty strong wording <laughs> yeah well you were asking what's changed and now i think we've the the business is doing better than ever but we're thinking long term and for us i think it, the conservation is much more of a priority now uh, so we look at other ways of making it work and the emphasis is on keeping that herd of cattle in the ings because when we took on the ings we didn't know really know about the ings or mm. the history of it or why it was important or what role cattle played and all the research we've done makes us think wow you know we're grazing um with Iron Age cattle, because Dexters are the closest living thing to the Celtic Shorthorn, mm. they've just dug up cattle bones a few miles down the road that are virtually indistinguishable from Dexter bones. Okay. So we're part of this thing that's gone on for thousands of years, and we're like the last vestige of it. You know, So it's really important that we keep that herd. And we've had a lot of disagreements over basically who owns the farm and sure. making the sort of money practicality side of it work, who lives where, etc. Because with it being a family farm, that's all complicated. So we've all fallen out over that. But the thing we all want to see is this herd stays together okay. and stays on the ings. So that is what we're currently working to do. And Natural England, do they, do they own the ings patch that you're on? Yeah, They own some of it. Um, there was a conscious decision when it was realised, oh dear, we need to save this landscape, to make sure that a few different parties owned various bits Great, of so it. Great, so there's no one monopoly. Yeah, no monopoly, and also if there was a threat, there'd be more resources yeah. to sort of swoop in and work together, which was a really canny move, I think. So there's a few different stakeholders, but Natural England's probably the prime one, because, I mean, they're the government, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know, Natural England are... They're basically the governmental body that oversees everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Juniper's just taken over, yeah. am I right in saying that? Yeah, um, interesting times for them. Yeah. Uh, but Natural England were kind of traditionally in conflict with the farmers on the Ings. Um, 
Natural England probably viewed the farmers as grumpy and irritating and stuck in their ways, and the farmers... Are you grumpy? Which one of you is grumpy and which one of you is irritating? Uh, that's me. <laughs> Both of <laughs> them. Great, yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the farmers didn't like Natural England coming in, changing uh-huh. things. How dare they tell us what we're going to do? You know, plenty of nature here anyway. Do they take a cut of your profits? No. 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 So you, you, you look after... You're a caretaker? Yeah. Yeah. There's... Um, there's rent to pay, but it's extremely minimal compared to... Because nobody else wants the land, I guess. Yeah. Um, at the time, we were given a lot of land. And funnily enough, on, on my land, I voluntarily put the rent up because um, I want to keep it in my hands, basically, sure. um, purely from a conservation. I'm not an active farmer anymore. Um, I just don't want to see all the work I've done on that land go backwards. So, other than the Dexters, what are the... We should probably head down and have a look, actually. Yeah. So where are we now? We're on our way down to um, a piece of land that's known as CV Car. Uh-huh. And it's my favourite piece. It's quite notorious locally for being awful. So, but I... Awful, how so? Very difficult to farm and very unproductive. Okay. So nobody wanted it. And I took it on purely because... It looked like a nice big piece, and at the time, you know, we had a lot of cows to feed. So I was like, yeah, well, like when it came up on the... Yeah, I like a challenge. <laughs> and it came up on the tender sheet. And I was like, well, that's a big piece. Why don't we get that? And I love the name CV Car. CV just sounded so evocative to me. Sieves are uh, rushes, so it means overgrown with rushes. Okay. So you spelled C-I-E-V... S-E-A-V-Y. Okay. Um, and... Rob and Paul balked. They they were like, oh no, <laughs> no. And I was like, oh no, come, come on lads, we're, we're not backing out now. You know, we've farmed <laughs> everything else. You know, let's get in there, come on. And then we came down here and saw this exact view, how it was a few years ago. Uh-huh. And even I thought, oh yeah, that's going to be <laughs> difficult because it's absolutely thick with rushes. And because it's it's so big, it's 80 acres, uh-huh. and it's all just one big blob. So it was really difficult to kind of figure out how we were going to get our electric fences up to penetrate through all this mass of vegetation. The logistics were horrific, but we just cracked on, and um, I'm quite pleased with what we've achieved. Right. So do you own this plot or this is... No, it's rented from Natural England. So this is Natural England. So this is government-owned, so publicly-owned land. I'm just paying to look after it. Uh, You're welcome, Great Britain. (laughs) (laughs) And like I say, I kept it on after we sort of split the farm business um, and I'm not a farmer anymore. I've kept this piece on just because I feel so strongly about it and for it. So these are the reeds that you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. And nothing wants to eat them. Nice, they're about um, a metre tall and they're everywhere and dense as hell. They're really yeah. thick and difficult to chew and not very nutritious. So, yeah, they're... The kind of things that I imagine being a kid grabbing and trying to yank out and then ripping my hand to shreds in the process. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think but, I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they do kind of serve a purpose. One of the benefits of the Dexters we've found is that they're small, mm-hmm. so they can find shelter where other breeds wouldn't. So we've managed to carve outside in winter 
because the calves are so small they can shelter in those reeds uh-huh. and the reeds are so dense like they won't feel they'll be completely out of the wind down there so they're absolutely fine so it's kind of like a very cheap shed okay <laughs> they enable us to carve outside with virtually no expense in winter so if you kind of change the way you think about things you can see benefits on land like this what were natural england hoping to achieve from owning this land in the first place just to sort of they wanted to save it from um, various threats um, intensification of farming drainage if you alter the drainage you're getting rid of a lot of these yeah. really precious species sorry rob i'll let you speak and the, <laughs> the sieves themselves like wet ground okay so the easiest way to get rid of them is to dry the ground out which as nat just said it removes so much other biodiversity uh, wildflowers insects and the birds eat the insects so that's why we have so many birds here so and oh, hey, yeah. What's that? a buzzard just There's flies buzzard. out the tree right in front of us so. Right got lots you. of other little birds flying around. Yeah. Oh, there's some yep. cows over there. They're the right vexes. in the middle. Right, how are we going to get to them, Rob? We could ask the buzzard to go and shepherd them over. <laughs> <laughs> if we walk down to the next ditch, walk along, okay. that will get us that way. So, I mean, you're obviously keen on the Dexters. Is there anything particular in terms of the other biodiversity they get here that you're particularly fond of? Well, I have a few favourite birds in particular. Um, the wading birds and the snipe which is it's a fairly small wading bird mm-hmm. and it's had declines of something like 89 percent in recent times largely due to intensification drainage of farmland sure. and removal from the landscape of decent sized patches of ground like this which is what they need to breed so snipe has been a particular focus for CV Car, hasn't it? Yeah, and on CV Car, I love the reed buntings. Now they're not a particularly exciting bird. No one gets excited about reed buntings, but <laughs> they live in all these reeds. Uh-huh. And when the chicks fledge, they're just on the ground in amongst the reeds, and they're they're kind of not very shy, and and they just. They all fledge in great numbers all at the same time. And if you take a walk through this bit, mm-hmm. you see all these gorgeous tiny little chicks. And I just love that so much. <laughs> there was, I think there was an advert you put up on Twitter the other day saying that if you buy from us, you get a steak, but also six curly eggs or something. Yeah, that was, um, the reserve manager here came up with that quote. Um, we were discussing a few years in what we'd achieved. And he just said, really, when people buy steaks from you, they're buying a steak and six lapwings <laughs> and uh, yeah we can hear something shouting over there with a buzzard isn't it yeah lapwings love this land as well and these wetland wading birds they're looking for a big open landscape mm-hmm. um, so while a lot of conservation efforts are about planting trees and there's massive emphasis on trees here we're actually removing trees sometimes okay and trying to keep it open because the, the wading birds if the tree numbers creep up the predators also creep up they've got somewhere to hide out and watch nests and then just swoop in and raid 
and yes that is part of nature's balance but we just don't have enough wading birds um, to maintain that kind of predation at the moment. Yeah that said though the valley is more treed than the yes, average. Yes it is in, in certain areas yeah. And in fact Derwent means valley of oaks. Okay <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> so around us on the heavy land we do have a lot of oak trees. Uh-huh. They're the dominant species. This is where the reed bunting is. Yeah, it's, it's getting pretty thick now, I won't yeah. lie. <laughs> you have to follow the cow tracks. We'll get in there. Nearly there. Yay. You'll notice that one of them isn't a Dexter there. Yes. It isn't even a cow. No, that's a horse. <laughs> We've got um, a herd of Exmoor ponies as well. Okay. We brought them in in 2016, I think so, yeah. yeah. Because we had so much land and we could only justify increasing the cattle herd as far as we could sell them. Sure. Because the cattle, they run out of grass usually around Christmas time. Uh, and then they can't go back out again till it's growing again. It's nothing to do with their hardiness. They can stay out all year. Sometimes they do. It's about there just isn't the grass for them because uh-huh. we have to eat it all off for conservation purposes. Okay, um, before it floods. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Flooding is the other big hazard here. Um, so we got the ponies. Seems because... the problem with York in general, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a flooding landscape and. You know, they used to deal with it so much better in the past and, and work with it. Um, and, and that's what we're doing. But yeah, the cattle need to come in. Um, uh, so we just needed something that was going to eat, but not cost anything mm-hmm. and not require anything of us. And we were looking for a horse breed that was going to do that. Um, there's another one. Yeah, there's three fillies here. They're called Butterbump, Snippick, and oh gosh. Butterbump. Yeah, they're all named after the birds here. Okay. Oh, what's the other one? Hushwing. Hushwing, my favourite one. Oh my god. Yeah. So hushwing. You're not allowed favourites. That's not the way it goes. The favourite word. Okay. Hushwing, because hushwing is the old word for barn owl. Okay. And I just think that is so perfectly descriptive. Hushwing. Oh my god. Then you've got snippick, which is what snipe used to be known as, and butterbump is a bittern. Sure. And it was all to do with the sound, like they used to be called. Um, the bull of the marsh because the sound they make is like a bull it's okay. a booming noise so they were the butter bumps this is gorgeous i mean if you ignore the plane that's doing the loop the loops above us yeah um which i think he's flying away now hopefully you've got the you've got the cattle with the horses you've got the kestrel and the buzzard flying overhead you've got they just swallows picking up all the flies yeah. which obviously the the yep. the cattle are sort of attracting with their body heat it's just they're a lot smaller than I was expecting as well. (laughs) They're cute little things, aren't they? Well, yes, from this distance, yes. (laughs) Um, So they've got, they're all horned, obviously. Pretty much, there's some that don't, some are naturally polled, some we might have bought from someone else and they've taken the horns off. Um, So, but most of them do have horns. Um, And we find the horns really good for identification at a distance. Sure. So they've all got to have an ear tag in by law. And you're supposed to be able to read that from a distance, okay. but you never can. Uh, but we know the horn shape and the colour and the size, so we can tell who's who from their horns from a distance, uh, and that's really handy. Um, so how many have we got? We've got about maybe 15, 20? 
Where are yeah, the others? There's about 30 um, in this group. Okay. They're all but. spread out, really. Uh, we used to run them as one huge mob, which was really great. Um, I was saying how like we lived alongside the cattle, and I don't know if you can imagine it, but every day, our day revolved around getting down here to the Ings, and moving, moving the cattle along and that daily contact and we used to move through the landscape and see the flowers and the birds changing and and that was a really special time for me and I got to know all the cows absolutely inside out and it I loved the sort of pastoral nomadic systems out there and I felt for a brief time that you know I was really part of that so that was absolutely amazing and I don't think I'd get that anywhere else in Britain really um, so that was a, a special time. Um, but now they're split up purely through uh, management. We've got various things we've got to achieve mm -hmm. and each site needs something a bit different and each group of animals is a bit different and it's all just completely tailored. Is well, there so anything that you, you still have to do by law that you would like not to do? Loads, yeah. <laughs> not <Everything>. from, <laughs> from a welfare point of view, we'd love not to tag. Because uh -huh. it's not nice to have something put in your ear. I think, yeah, they can get over that, that's fine. Uh, but then when they're in a landscape like this and they're sticking their heads in trees and things, a lot of the tags get ripped out sure. and that cannot be pleasant. So we'd love not to do that. Um, from an environmental point of view, I don't think there's very much we're forced into. I guess the, the biggest thing for me would be the fact that this landscape is so chopped up and spread out means spread out means that we have to um, transport the cattle by road. Mm -hmm. We can't run them around like we used to. Sure. Sometimes we can. Yeah. We have. We've done some big droves, haven't we? But a yeah. lot of the time, it's it's not possible. So we're having to burn diesel to cart the cows around sure. and to get them to the abattoir. They graze on the other side of the road from the abattoir, but because there's that road in between, we have to gather them up. Get them in a lorry and take them to the abattoir. Sure. That's that's kind of annoying, and yes, not very good for your carbon footprint. But I was reading that you're 100% renewable on the farm as much as you can be, at least. The only thing that's not renewable is the diesel that we use, which is why we've always strived to look for ways to reduce it. Um, keeping the cows out grazing for as long as possible is one way. Because mm -hmm. you're not you're making less hay. Yeah. You're not having to bring the hay to the cattle, which usually involves tractors at this kind of scale. Sure. Uh, they're building up muck in the shed, which then has to be mucked out with a tractor. So we're always conscious of that, and every last drop of diesel counts, really, because, sure. yeah, it's not a renewable resource. No. Um, and, yeah, it'll be good when farming has um, an alternative to tractors, and, you know, plant-based systems will become a lot more sustainable uh, when that day comes, but it's not here yet. There was a tweet that you put out the other day, which I thought was wonderful, about asking what it would take for people to become a fruit or nut picker. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. Incentivize someone. Have you come up with a solution? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, I was reading an article this morning about stress levels in humans mm -hmm. as people have changed from physical work to mental work. It's taxing our brains more. Sure. But there's still not a great swell of people leaving their city jobs to do the kind of hard manual labour that our ancestors used to do. Yeah, so and I, do, I don't think it's all financial. Is it an education shift that needs to happen then? To, to highlight, achieve... To highlight that the, there isn't one sort of capitalist utopia that we should all strive to be a part of but an own personal emotional agenda that you should be allowed to pursue yourself 
less sort of yeah well the economic if the, model if, if you're fighting against factory farming here you what you want is to fight against factory education i guess is what i'm asking yeah it's mm, yeah it's a full society thing yeah, we're I mean, all our daughter's home educated so we're not we're not fans of the factory <laughs> education uh, you may mention yeah We've always encouraged people to do their own research. Like we're not organic accredited. We're not a member of the Soil Association or the Pasture for Life Association or all these other organisations that have sprung up trying to quantify what it is we're doing. Mm-hmm. We've always said like the only way to be sure if you're passionate about what you're eating is to go and meet it and ask your own questions and get to know your farmer. Sure. You know, there isn't a shortcut. Um, yeah, that's the thing about biodiversity. You can't hide the fact that you haven't got it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the evidence is very physical it's yeah. there and if you visit the farm yeah i mean i'm, I'm looking around now i've got it. a whole host of wildflowers the thistles are everywhere the rushes are abundant we've got trees we've got birds yeah. and then the great thing about the ings like we're not part of the lake district or something like that where everyone's part of this whole landscape these mm. are very clearly like patches that don't fit in sure. we'll have driven through arable fields here and you can see that they're just monocrops you know there's, there's nothing else in yeah it looks like a nature reserve is what you think you're looking at well it is a nature reserve yeah it's, it's a working nature reserve it's a it's a national nature reserve so it's one of the most important in the country it's internationally recognized by the ramsar convention as a, a wetland of importance no one's ever heard of it but <laughs> yeah it, it's about it's the cream of the crop when it comes to nature reserves sure. you don't get tourists coming but that's that's not what it's about is it so yeah, yeah well, it's very much a nature reserve that's part of why there's so much nature here because it has yeah. largely been ignored for so many years mm-hmm. that did protect it but i think there's a push now um to publicize what is here and try and balance the protection and the publicization sure. i don't know if that's the word <laughs> the awareness now. the awareness yeah yeah um, well they often go hand in hand unfortunately yeah a lot of things have changed <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things have changed in the ings um and yeah the lack of knowledge has protected us in the past but i think it won't in future sure, sure. Uh, we will need help um, but it is a working nature reserve, and that's really exciting for us. Uh, like we say, ne- uh, food is a byproduct of conservation. Much better than models suggested by others, I feel, where you set aside a piece of land and you use it intensively, and then you set aside another piece for nature. Sure. I, I would rather live in a landscape where everything is mixed together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important concern, isn't it? I don't want to look at a monocropped landscape. Sure why should I you know if I can yeah. get my food from the nature reserve I'll look at the nature reserve out my window thanks <laughs> but on the other hand periodically throughout the year around here there are crop residues and stubble fields so the wildlife that thrives in the ings does spread out into the wider landscape as well but you need the mixture of both sure. yeah, to that's... balance it and give year-round habitat for these animals that is a, an important point. We don't want to beat on crops too much. People aren't going to stop eating crops. That's a ridiculous pipe dream. Um, so, yeah, if we can get everything working together, which I think is what you see here, um, like Rob says, it's not just the wildlife that use uh, the crop residues. The livestock that we have had, uh, you know, the dairy cows, they'll be eating crop residue as well. Sure. So from the same landscape, we get our crops, our dairy, our meat and our wildlife and mixed farming is what we're all about yeah 
100%. Put everything all back together again. <laughs> Super. <laughs> um, so there are three questions that I ask everyone who's come on the podcast. Um, one of them is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? <laughs> she knows I'm going to say a mile down the road. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Along the uh, canal, a uh, particular special place, Thornton Ellers, which is, well, it's just lovely because you're on the top of the glacial moraine, mm-hmm. which was... Everyone where, knows what that is, right? Yeah, basically all the crud <laughs> that was carried by the glacier in the last ice age. Mm, lovely was deposited there <laughs> because that was the southernmost point of it sure. so it creates this sandy hill which overlooks the Ings and you can be walking along the top of there and the barn old soaring along alongside you and yeah it's the best place in the world gorgeous would you accompany in that or do you have a, a separate one there I want to go to Patagonia Okay. <laughs> slightly different yeah um, I like uh, the pastoralist uh, cultures nomadic and all that sort of thing so I'm, I've am i done my farming for 10 years which kept me restricted to a place mm-hmm. um, and now I'm uh, freer of that I'd like to go and do some more exploration of the foreign version of Rob okay <laughs> so it's the gaucho. be you with a tan and a moustache yeah Rob's of the yeah. world she's yeah Rob's of the world go and see them so yeah Patagonia you've got the gaucho culture <laughs> I hope so <laughs> that'd be great um, um, yeah super should we colonise the moon I don't see a point in that does it have bound holes yeah can, <laughs> can Dexter's grace there <laughs> yeah, they're pretty hardy species they'd give them a go it yeah would, yeah CV car done that next stop the moon <laughs> yeah I think we should give renovate our own house before we start <laughs> <laughs> before we start looking elsewhere yeah, yeah I think that answer's a no right and finally um, if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be Aurochs. Okay. <laughs> because the Dexters are the closest thing you've got to wild cattle. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're serious about rewilding and creating these habitats, we need the full mixture of animals that we had in the past, which we've just destroyed. So bring back the practice and bring back the animals. Well, I like to think that if the human race were to, you know, be just wiped out by climate change or Brexit or whatever, (laughs) that everything else would be fine. Uh And we do need the cattle to do the grazing. So we need the wild cattle to replace the Dexters. Although Uh that said, the Dexters would probably do all right on their own. Yeah, I think in Britain, Dexters are a really good fit just because we're such a populated island. And although I'd be very excited to see an Aurax because cattle are life, you know, mm. um, I wonder how well they would mix with modern British life. I, I don't think it's going to be good. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, humans not being here. Yeah. That's fine. So if humans disappeared, do you think the, the Dexters would give the Frisians a run for their money? Oh, in, in the clans of wild cattle the Frisians, be roaming. The Frisians would go with us. Yeah, yeah, the Frisians are totally dependent on us. Dexters, well, don't we say, like, if there was a nuclear apocalypse, you'd have cockroaches, rats and Dexters. And that's <laughs> why we keep Dexters, because they are tough as old boots and we can 
ask anything of them and they'll do it. I mean, look at them, they're ready for the challenge. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think Rob's answer is practical and good. Aurochs, they've only been extinct for a few hundred years. We could possibly accommodate them. But I would love to see a woolly mammoth. I don't think that's very practical. But I think I would you could get like a premium on mammoth steaks, though. I think that would work. Yeah, also uh, knitting with mammoth wool. I'd give that a go. Yeah, all the byproducts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, they're alive. They're running around. Yeah. That's my bit of grass. Um, wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. It's hugely appreciated. Thanks for showing me around. <laughs> You're welcome. A massive thank you to Rob and Nat and to their Irish Dexter cattle for their insight and hospitality. If you're intrigued by modern farming or anything you heard us touch on in this interview, I cannot recommend Rob's incredibly erudite blog enough. You can find a big link to it beneath my thoughts on today's episode at treesacrowd.fm. Also, a huge thanks to my editor, Ollie, for working his magic this week. But until our next episode, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy.